Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 4. One of my favorite stories that I've shared with you before is of an artist who had his paintings on display in an art gallery. He went by one day to see if they had sold, and the gallery owner said, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that a gentleman came by and asked me if I thought your work would appreciate in value after your death. When I told him that I was sure it would, he bought all 15 of your paintings. That's wonderful, the artist said. What's the bad news? The bad news is that the guy that bought all your paintings is your doctor. Now that was a guy with money in his pockets and not much time on his hands. And I want to suggest to you that on this first day of 2012, that that's you. doesn't matter what your doctor's report is. You don't have much time on your hands. And in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, Peter puts it this way, the end of all things is near. Can you believe it's 2012? Some of us are still living in the 60s. 2012. I never thought I would see 2012. Peter says, life as we know it is not going to go on forever. Your life in this flesh carton is temporal. There will be a termination. There will be an end. And Peter says, the end is near. Paul said it this way, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. John said it this way, children, it is the last hour. James said it this way, the coming of the Lord is is at hand. I love summer storms. When a, when a storm is coming in the summer, I love to go out on my deck and, and, and you know, it's, it's 90 degrees and suddenly it drops down into the 70s and the wind is picking up and the clouds are coming and you, you see the lightning and you hear the thunder and you know that that storm is at hand. You can almost touch it. Jesus said something about that. He said, why is it that you can read the signs of the sky and you can't read the signs of the time? As we look around our world today, it's very obvious that the end is near. It's very obvious that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Peter says, the end is near. So on 1-1-2012, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do with the rest of our time, given that it is short? In the 2007 movie called The Bucket List, Jack, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman portray two terminally ill men who go on a road trip with a wish list of things to do before they kick the bucket. 
Their list included things like driving a Shelby Mustang, flying over the North Pole, eating dinner in France, riding motorcycles on the Great Wall of China, skydiving. Let me ask you something. The end is near. What do you want to do before you kick the bucket? What is your bucket list for 2012? Maybe you want to complete an Ironman marathon or triathlon or whatever it is. I don't run. Maybe you've always wanted to bungee jump. Maybe you want to go on an African safari. Go for it. But let me tell you this, when it says the end is near, we know that's not really the end. Because when the end comes, in that sense, we are going to stand before Jesus Christ. And so I would suggest that you put on your list things that will please Him. And Peter gives us five of those things in this passage, and I just want to go over them with you. Number one is think. Look at verse 7 again. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment. That phrase, sound judgment, means to be in your right mind, to be in control of your thoughts, to be thinking in a way that has things in perspective. You see, if you're going to change your actions in 2012, you have to be, you have to start with, changing your thoughts. Because everything you do starts with a thought. I hear people say all the time, I don't know why I did that. You did it because you thought it. You may say, I don't know what I was thinking. But what you do is what you think. If you have wrong thoughts, you will have wrong actions. If you have right thoughts, you will have right actions. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, 2, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And that's why Peter starts here with our thoughts. He says, be of sound judgment. Now, what does that mean exactly? Interestingly, this same word is used in two other places in the Bible. Let me give you an idea of what it means by those two illustrations. This word is used in Mark chapter 5, describing the demon-possessed man named Legion. That was the man who lived among the tombs, couldn't be restrained by anybody, took rocks and cut himself Jesus came along and delivered him from the demons, and this word is used to describe his new condition. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 15, it says he was sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. He had been out of control. Jesus freed him, and now he was in control. He was in his right mind. He saw things in proper perspective. And what was the first thing he said? I want to follow Jesus. It's used another place in Scripture in Romans 12, 3, where it says, I say to every man among you, 
not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Now, their sound judgment means that you don't think too highly of yourself. You're not conceited. You're not full of pride. So what does it mean to think right? What does it mean to have sound judgment? Well, it means to have the proper perspective on life. The most important thing is that I follow Jesus. And to have proper perspective on myself that I walk in humility. You ever find yourself among the tombs? I do. Sometimes you say, what am I doing here? I'm I'm living in the tombs, killing myself. I'm way out of perspective. Or God blesses you, and what happens? You get filled with pride. Look what I've accomplished. Those are the two subtle attacks of Satan. He will get you in the pig pen or the tomb, or when you get blessed by God, he will fill you with pride. The fact that the end is near ought to disturb our complacency so that we say, I'm going to follow Jesus in humility. That's thinking properly. Years ago, when my kids were young, I was out in the summertime watching a storm come, and uh, the wind was blowing down the street, and I was just enjoying the, the, the storm coming. All of a sudden, the wind switched directions and started going exactly the opposite direction. And I, in my sound judgment, said, the end of our neighborhood is at hand. And so I gathered up the kids, and we went down to the basement. Why? I would have loved to watch the storm, but it was a tornado that was coming. Peter says the end is near. It requires sound judgment, and you need to do something about it. Now, how do you get sound judgment? How do you think right? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Some of us, if we're honest, have been on a Bible diet. You know, we're not taking the word in richly. We, we got Bible light in our life. And we need to change the way we think. You know, some of us are committed to, you, you know, some of you guys will watch ESPN Sports Center every night. If you can't be there, you'll record it. Some of you, when it comes to the news, whether it's the O'Reilly Factor or it's CNN or whatever it is, you might record it and watch it, and I'll say, well, why do you watch that every day? Because I need to know what's going on. Well, if you really want to know what's going on, you'll get in God's Word. Watch the news, but watch the news through the perspective of God's truth and God's Word in your life so that you are thinking rightly and therefore acting rightly. Number one on your bucket list ought to be to think. 
think differently in this coming year. Second is pray. Look at verse 7 again. He says at the end, be of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And that word sober means just what we use it as. It means to be free from the influence of intoxicants. It was a word that, that implied being watchful and being alert. That's a necessary ingredient in prayer, that we be alert to the urgency of it, alert to the needs, alert to the importance of prayer. And Peter says, since the end is near, you need to be more alert and more in prayer. When do we usually pray most? When we have a crisis. You get a bad doctor's report, you get serious about prayer. Some calamity happens, you get serious about prayer. I heard about three guys who fished every Sunday, so never went to church. They were out, three of them in the boat, fishing on a Sunday morning, and the boat began to sink. None of them could swim. So they looked at each other and said, somebody needs to pray. I've never prayed. I can't pray. I can't pray. I can't pray. One guy goes, well, I'll pray. And so his prayer was, God, I've never bothered you before, and if you get, this, get us out of this situation, I'll never bother you again. Two things wrong with that prayer. Number one, prayer doesn't bother God. He loves for us to pray. And secondly, whether we know it or not, we're all in a sinking boat. This world is sinking. If you live as long as me, you'll realize your body is sinking. We're in a sinking boat. The end is near. We are in the shadow of Jesus' return. And it ought to drive us to our knees in prayer. Would you admit something with me this morning? You don't pray enough. You don't pray enough. And why don't you pray enough? Your excuse is probably this. I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy to pray. What does Peter say? The end is near. There's very little time left. So what should you do with that very little time? Pray more. Wow, we don't think that way. Got a little time, I need to get busy. Peter says, pray more. Because if you're dependent on God, he can accomplish a lot more in your little time than you can accomplish yourself. Peter was slow to learn that. The night before the cross, Jesus took them to the garden, of, uh, the, the garden on, on uh, what's it called? The Mount of Olives. It's not the Garden of Olives. You're, you're smart. So they go over there to, pr- to pray, and Jesus spends very little time left. What does Jesus do? He spends three separate times in prayer 
at least an hour each time in prayer. So he, he spends at least three hours in prayer when he has very little time left. In fact, he's arrested in the garden. So Jesus knows i got little time. What do I do? If the Son of God prayed in the little time he had left, we need to pray. So he's praying. What's Peter doing? He's doing what we often do when it's time to pray. He's sleeping. He's sleeping. Jesus wakes him up. Says, couldn't you pray for just one hour? Couldn't you stay up and pray? Here's the same Peter who was slow to learn that lesson. Now he's saying to us, the end is near. We need to be alert and pray. When the Lord comes back, I don't want him to have to shake me out of my spiritual slumber. I don't want to be standing before Jesus Christ wiping the sleep out of my eyes, the spiritual sleep out of my eyes, because I wasn't alert and I wasn't prayerful. I still remember when I was in Bible college and a guy named Dan Small was sitting next to me. He was driving some people to the airport and I went along with him and we were just talking about things and having a great discussion. I still remember what he said to me. He said, you know, I pray so little that I'm afraid if the Lord came back today, he would have to introduce himself to me. That stuck in my mind and my heart. I don't want to pray so little that when Jesus comes back, he has to introduce himself all over to me again. Bucket list, think, pray. Thirdly, love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Now, if you notice this, this phrasing, he says, keep it up. Peter assumes that you are loving. That's a given. Christians love one another. 1 John 3.14 tells us it is the evidence to us individually that we're saved. Because it says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. It's the evidence to me that I'm saved that I love you. But it's also the evidence to other people that I'm saved because John says, in, or Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so love is a given. In fact, John says in 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God. If you don't love, then you're not a Christian. So John, or Peter is not saying here that you are to love. He's assuming you love. What he's saying is here that you are to love fervently. And that word fervently is a word that means strained or stretched. It's used of a muscle that's taut. It's used to describe a horse in full gallop. It suggests intensity, earnestness, 
full-out extension. Peter is saying to us, we need to stretch our love. And what I like here is he begins with the words, above all. In other words, I listed this third in the bucket list, but I want you to move it to number one. Because above everything else, first on your list, is that you are to love others fervently. Now, why is love essential? And why does he want me to strain at love? Look at the last part of the verse, and I think it contains the answer. He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. That's a quote from Proverbs 10, 12. Love covers a multitude of sins. What's our natural reaction when people sin? We're curious to know the juicy details, right? We want to know the juicy details so that we can tell other people about the juicy details, so that we can gossip about that sin, and so that we can condemn that person. Peter says love doesn't do that. What does love do? Love covers a multitude of sins. Two aspects to that. Number one, it covers sin in that it doesn't want to tell anybody else about it. It doesn't want to expose it to everybody else. It desires to cover it up. And secondly, love forgives that sin. Love forgives and forgives and forgives again. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And somebody stepped up and tried to find an exception by saying, well, who's my neighbor? Love your neighbor as, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells that story about the man who went down the road to Jericho and got beaten up and left for dead. And he said a priest walked by and a Levite walked by and then a Samaritan walked by. Now, you have to understand the culture of that day because a Samaritan was somebody the Jews hated. Who's my neighbor? Jesus mentions the Samaritans. Jews didn't even walk through Samaria because they hated them so much they wouldn't step on their turf. Who's my neighbor? The Samaritan is your neighbor. That's the person you're to pick up and bandage and care for and take to the inn and take your credit card out and say, whatever it costs, I'll pay for it. That's the person you're to love because love covers a multitude of sins. Can I ask you to do something this morning? As you consider your bucket list, Think about the person that for you is a Samaritan. The person that, when you think about them, it may not be a person, it may be a, a group of people. That when you think about them, you just cringe and go, oh, that's so sinful. That's, they're so awful. They're so... In 2012, would you put on your bucket list to love the unlovely?
to cover their sin, not expose it, and to forgive and to forgive and to forgive again. That's love. Fourth, reach out. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. This is the Greek word philozena. You're familiar with Philadelphia. Delphos means brother. That is the city of brotherly love. This word means, this word is philozenia. Xenia means stranger. So rather than love of your brother, hospitality is love of a stranger. Now we usually think about hospitality as having our friends over to our house. That's not really the nature of hospitality. Hospitality is showing love to people you don't know. Hospitality is when you see somebody here at church that you don't know, you get to know them. You invite them out to a meal. You invite them to your house. You see, hospitality is expressed to strangers. And that's a necessary activity in a growing church. And when somebody comes in new, you don't say, you're sitting in my seat. When someone comes in that you don't know, you show hospitality to them. You love that person. I bet as you look around today, there are quite a few people here you don't even know. You never met them. It starts there. I'd like to introduce myself to you. I'd like to get to know you. I'd like to move you from stranger to friend, from stranger to brother and sister, from stranger to fellow worker in the gospel. Got a letter last week I'd like to share with you. Dear congregation, in Philippians, Paul thanks the local church for the gift that they provided to him while he was in jail. While I'm no Paul, I would like to take a moment to thank you, my local church, for all the gifts, prayers, meals, and other support you have provided for not only to me, but more importantly to my family while we deal with our thorn. His thorn is a brain tumor that was removed recently. Thanks again for showing his love, Patrick Young and family, Janice, Amanda, and Matthew. That's a family that has only been here about two years at the church. And I want to applaud you for rallying around them and showing biblical hospitality to moving them from strangers to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's hospitality. And notice, Peter adds here, we're to do it without complaining. Why does he add that? Because that's one of the subtle sins of hospitality. Some of you entertain family and friends over the holidays probably. When they all leave and the mess is still there, 
you're picking up after them, what are you saying? I'm never doing this again. They're so ungrateful. They're not, you know, they didn't do, you know, I'm washing dishes and cleaning and straightening up. And what is that? That's the Martha syndrome. Jesus, make her help me. What I love about this is that Jesus is never satisfied that we change our actions. He also wants us to change our attitude. So it's not enough to to love strangers by saying, I'm going to have you over to the house and feed you, and then I'm going to complain after you leave. I'm going to show love to strangers, and I'm going to have the right attitude in it. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to do it cheerfully. I'm going to do it freely. I'm going to do it willingly. Reach out. And then fifth on the list is serve. Notice verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The shortness of time brings an urgency to our service. And what I like about this verse is it tells us not not only that God has called you to serve, but he has enabled you to serve. He has equipped you with a spiritual gift. And this verse tells you that you have one. If you're a believer, you have a gift. Because he says, each one has a gift. If you want to study the gifts further, look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Some of the gifts are preaching, teaching, evangelism, giving, exhorting, faith, leading, showing mercy. Every believer has a gift. Not only that, but I love the fact that my translation says it's a special gift. It's a unique gift. In fact, it's reflective of what he calls the manifold grace of God. That is literally the multicolored grace of God. God has given each one of you a gift, and he has given you a unique gift that no one else has. Either a gift or a combination of gifts that no one else has so that you are necessary in the body of Christ. You are a snowflake in the body of Christ. And then it also tells us that you have a responsibility because he says you are to be a good steward. What's a steward? A steward was someone who was responsible to take care of the things that belonged to his master. So if the master went on a trip, he left the steward in charge of the property. He didn't own the property. He just had to take care of the property. Well, God has given you a spiritual gift, and he says you're a steward. He's given it to you, but you're responsible to use it. How do you use it as a good steward? Well, he tells us here. He says, employ it in serving one another. I like that word, employ it. Put it to work. How? In serving other people. You see, the gift he's given you is not for you. It's for other people. You're to use it in serving others. And in that way, you experience the manifold grace of God. You see, you will never fully experience God's grace if you live in isolation. The only way you experience grace to its fullness 
is to take that gift he's given you, which is a gift of grace, and give it away, which is the expression of grace, to other people. So you use, it in, you use it in serving others, and then secondly, you use your gift to glorify God. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I think that verse suggests there are two categories of gifts. There are speaking gifts and serving gifts. Your gift may be a speaking gift in that you preach or teach, or maybe it's just exhorting or encouraging other people. Or your gift may be an action gift like helps or showing mercy or giving. Peter says if your gift is a speaking gift, you're to let God speak through you. And if your gift is an action gift, you are to do it in God's strength which He supplies. You see, don't serve in your own strength. Don't do a spiritual activity in your fleshly strength. You're to do it in God's strength. And so clearly, in this verse, we see that it's His gift, His grace, His word, and His strength. So what? He gets the glory. It's all given to you. And you're to serve others to the glory of God. So there's your bucket list for 2012. If you want to add to it, swimming across the English Channel, great for you. But here are five things to focus on. Number one, think with God's perspective. Two, pray for God to impact people's lives and start with me. Third, love, even the most unlovely. Four, reach out to strangers with the love that makes them friends. And fifth, serve with God's gift in God's power so that God gets the glory. And if you focus on these five things, you will find yourself going through life saying in the words at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. If you're focused on the things that please Him, then you will be asking that He come home or He come back soon, which He has promised to do. I want to close by backing up to that phrase at the end of verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Because that word covers is an interesting word. It's actually the word used in Scripture when you read that big word propitiation. We read that and go, I have no idea what that means. That word propitiation actually means to cover up. It's used in the Old Testament of the mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant. And remember on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the temple inside the veil that one time a year and he would take the blood and he would drip it on the mercy seat, the covering. It was the place where God in the Old Testament met with man and symbolically covered man's sins. 
and it reminds us of the love of God. Because what does he do for us? He covers our sins. I love that. God looked down from heaven and saw us in all our sin, and he didn't talk about how disgusting we were. He didn't gossip about us to Michael, the archangel. You know what he did? He took his big blanket and he came down and he covered our sin. And it cost him the death of his son to forgive your sin and to forgive my sin. And this morning as we close our service, we're going to reflect on that. We're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup. And we're going to remember the love of God which covered our sin. Not just covered it, but forgave our sin. And God says, I remember it no more. I've buried it in the depths of the sea. And the price for that was the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray this morning. Praise team's going to come back and lead us in some worship. As you reflect on this new year, we're going to come and take the bread and the cup together. If you're here as a guest, you're welcome to partake. This is the Lord's Supper. It's not our supper. Let's examine our hearts. Let's make sure we're right before him, and then let us come and take the bread and the cup and remember the one who paid the debt we can never pay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus who died in our place. Lord, our words can't express our thankfulness. Today we come and we do what you asked us to do. We take the bread and the cup and we remember that you gave your life for us. Lord, as we do so today, we pray that we would be challenged afresh to prioritize our lives in a way that pleases you, to live our lives in a way that says, come Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that we might truly focus on you during this time and give you the glory that you are due in your worthy name. Amen.